0: So a man goes up to heaven and he comes before God and God says to him, I'm sorry, but you're in the wrong place. Because as far as I can see, you gave no tzedakah, no charity. You didn't give to the poor, you didn't give to Israel. And worst of all, you didn't give to your synagogue. This is God talking, not me. And the man says, listen, I am a very wealthy man. And God says, I know. And the man says, I'll write you a check. And God says, I'm sorry, but here we only accept receipts. You know, earlier in my career, I was head of the Christian Jewish Dialogue of Toronto, which then led me to be invited to the Christian Jewish Medical Ethics Board for the University Hospital Network. And in those years, I spent a lot of time with Catholic and Anglican priests and academics Quite a few became my friends and remain so to this very day. You know, to the uninitiated, one of the things that happens at these meetings is the almost constant display of how much we have in common. We talk about prayer services, about attendance, about education and religious literacy, about our love for biblical texts, but it's also one of the most misleading things. Because if you scratch at the surface, you'll see that jews parade very differently than christians how we teach and transmit our tradition is remarkably different from how christians do it the bible that they read is not the bible that we read and how and when jews attend their houses of worship when and how jews come to shul is incredibly different from how christians attend theirs which can't be surprising because these are two different religions. Now we may all worship the same God, but it is only to the unlearned, untrained eye that religions all seem the same, because they're not. On a beautiful fall day, I met one of the priests for coffee and I told him about the phenomena of Yom Kippur Jews. And he was perplexed. So I explained to him that there are many Jews Proud, committed, Jews of deep conviction and identity, but who will attend synagogue and services on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And because of that, they see and experience Judaism as a moment of judgment and repentance. They'll never experience in the synagogue Judaism in its joyous moments, Passover, Hanukkah, and Purim. the priest leans into me and says, you know, I have the opposite problem. My people only show up in church for the happy times. Christmas and Easter. They never think about judgment and repentance. So allow me to confess the obvious. Rabbis and priests all appreciate when our houses of worship are full of people praying. But the contrast between the central days of the Jewish and Christian calendars are profoundly telling. For example... Christians celebrate a day when they believe that Jesus was given his place in heaven, and so at least was potentially all of humanity. But consider that Yom Kippur is not a day of celebration, but a day of seriousness. It is not a day given to focus on salvation, but on contemplation, on change and acting. Starting last night, Jews throughout the world, in Hebrew for those who can, And for the rest of us, in English or French, Italian, whatever language you are native in, recite it again and again, a long list of sins that we think that we might have committed over the year. And then we ask for forgiveness. And then we conclude, as we have done for thousands of years with these words, Yehi ratzon may it be, Shelo od, That I should not sin again. While this entire day is devoted to prayer and to past deeds, I want you to consider that the concept of an afterlife is not mentioned even once, which is to say, neither heaven nor a purgatory, nothing of an afterlife or eternal salvation is prayed for. But don't take my word for it. Over the next hours of this day, I challenge you to find one reference, one suggestion, one implication to anything other than this world, to nothing other than what you have been and what you will be here. Because the real and true question of this day is if God will consider us sufficiently repentant and therefore sufficiently redeemed to continue our path to bring better to this world. Our focus today is not to get to heaven, but to make ourselves heavenly. And it is right and true to ask, how do we do that? On one hand, because our attention is what we did wrong this past year, you might think that Judaism is wired for unhappiness, something that only focuses on the bitter, kind of like the story of a group of Jews having dinner. And as they finish, the waiter approaches the table and asks, tell me, was anything okay?" Like the waiter, you might think that Judaism believes that nothing is okay. You might think that redemption and happiness are ruses. But when we talk about happiness, it's important to know that it's a paradox. On one hand, you know and I know that happiness is a good thing. At the same time, we know that people who say to themselves, happiness is important to me, I want to pursue it, end up being less happy. In fact, the science shows that people like that are more prone to depression. So the paradox is that happiness is obviously a good thing, but searching for it is a problem. And that's because you can't go to happiness. You can't set yourself to find happiness, and for all the talk of living my best life and being happy, human beings are mistaken to think that it's an Instagram post or a reservation at a hot restaurant. Happy is a feeling, but happiness is something else entirely. I remember, years ago, realizing something in Israel that was so glaringly missing from the other places that I had been. Growing up in New York, I had visited Pershing Square, just outside of Grand Central Station, or Union Square more times than I could count. The same is true. A trip to Washington, D.C. is no different. There's Lafayette Square and the National Mall. The same is true in Paris for the Arc de Triomphe. In England, Wellington's Arch, which is to say that all these countries have monuments marking their victory in battle over their enemies. But in Israel, there is not even one. There is no monument marking the victories of the Independence War, of the Six-Day War. Nothing throughout the land can see marking the victory over the near-death experience of the Yom Kippur War, which was Israel's most deadly, most costly, most humbling war. And all this despite the near impossibility of Israel surviving any of them. But on the other hand, there is no shortage of monuments marking the loss of human life, of war memorials to the young who have perished, to the victims of terror. And perhaps what is the most consequential moment of the year, which is Yom HaShoah, when the sirens clap and the entire country stops Pain, not victory, is writ large everywhere. This difference, seen in Israel, is the outgrowth of a Jewish idea that humans, unlike anything else that lives, can both suffer and succeed. Trees or plants that rub up against a wall or a fence will grow in the opposite direction. Animals of all kinds deliberately avoid pain, and not only avoid it, but are careful not to return to the place where they experience pain. Researchers have long known that if an animal feels, experiences pain long after the pain is over, the animal will still avoid going back to that place. Which is true for everything that lives on this earth except for you. To be human is to understand that you can face pain and being human is deeply knowing that you have to face it. Now you can choose to turn away from it. You can try to immerse yourself in good times with happy things. You can try to avoid commitment and hurt, but only for so long. And if you live on long enough, you will know at some point the price must be paid. If you want happiness, know that the search for happiness both begins and ends on the inside of you. If you wish for it, you'll have to lurch into your weakness and your deficits. The psychoanalyst Carl Jung once noted that people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. But if you dare, he wrote, whoever looks inside awakens. And so Judaism, with its Torah and its wisdom and traditions, is the method that we use to accomplish that. There's one small lesson from it I want to share. Today, as we accounted for the exhaustive list, of all the ways that we go about messing up our lives throughout the year, we are reminded that perhaps our most important lesson is in the Ten Commandments. Now, I know that these are commandments of to do or not to do, of shall or shall nots. These are commandments that are neither opaque or subjective. They are simple and clear. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't murder. You'll know when you violated one for sure, which is true for the first nine, but not the tenth. The final commandment tells us lo tachmod, you shall not covet or be jealous of what another person has. And it has been long asked, how can you command the feeling? You can command someone not to do something, but how can you possibly command someone not to feel something? Leaving us to understand that everyone will break the Ten Commandments. Telling, telling us that we will fail, but the losses is point to where we must grow. And that is the lesson that is found here today. It is why Jews, no matter how distant they may be from synagogue life, they know this day. You want happiness? Know where you are broken, and don't be afraid to look at it. It's true that all human beings have five senses, touch, taste, sight, smell, and hearing, but Jews are gifted with the sixth sense, The sense of memory. When a Jew experiences something, we ask, what do I remember this like? No mention of Yom Kippur can be complete without asking that question. What can we not forget? For a people of memory, the answer rightly should be nothing, but that's impossible. Some things will always be forgotten, but others can never be. After all, Yuzkor does not mean remember. The Hebrew word yizkor means, we will remember. When looking at the landscape of the Shoah, we see the differences. There were labor camps and prison camps and concentration camps. But the very worst of the worst were the death camps. These places had no barracks, no places for the inmates to work, no washrooms and no kitchens. When the Jews arrived there, they were taken to their deaths immediately. These were places like Belzich, and Sobibor and Chablinka. And we know little of these places because as the war was drawing to a close, the Germans destroyed them. And because no one, nearly no one survived them, to tell of what happened there. Today to walk in Chablinka is to see 17,000 stones bearing the names not of people, but of towns and cities and communities where Jews had once lived. One of those stones has the name of a small French town named Savignac. In 1941, eight-year-old Saul Messenger and his parents arrived in Sauvignac after first being on the St. Louis, which had taken 900 Jews out of Germany with Cuban visas in their hand. Cuba refused to accept the visas. The boat then went to the United States and Canada, who also refused to give them safe harbor. With dwindling supplies and no options, the St. Louis headed back to Germany. On the boat, Saul became best friends with another boy named, named Leon Silber. Saul's parents wisely decided against a return to Berlin. Jews were being rounded up and never heard of again. Instead, his and Leon's parents had heard that there was an underground operation that brought Jews to Vichy France, the part of France that had not been conquered by the Nazis that still had an American consulate, and the hope of a visa. They arrived in Savignac and settled in. Over their time there, they avoided the actions, roundups, and arrests. Although Saul's father was briefly arrested and sent to a concentration camp, he escaped on Christmas Eve because the guards were all drunk. Then their visa arrived to join family in America. And off they went. But Leon Silver and his family were still in Sauvignac. As the roundups intensified, Leon's parents went to his teacher, a French Catholic, and asked if she would hide Leon in the school. She agreed. The next day, the police came and took his parents away. Two days later, Leon left his hiding place in the school and went to the police station over tears, he told them that he missed his parents and he wanted to be with them. They said they could arrange that. They sent him to Auschwitz where he was murdered. In all honesty, I'm so tired of telling these stories because they're so painful and so racked with damage and hurt. But it's also the reason why we have to tell them, and over and over again. And as I age, they become more senseless and less understandable. But perhaps, tonight, our answer will come. Tonight at sunset is the climax of Yom Kippur. During the closing prayers of Ni'ilah, after begging again and again for forgiveness, Jews over the world will end Yom Kippur with the singing of Avinu Makenu, Our Father, Our King. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King. the lefanecha. We have sinned before You. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King. Ein lanu melech We have no king but You. We will ask again, God, for mercy and forgiveness. Attributes of God that Judaism holds most dear. But towards the end of this prayer, one anguished, pain statement stands out. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King avenge before our eyes the spilt blood of our people. That after a day of devoted to prayer, synagogues everywhere are filled with fasting, exhausted Jews. We have spent the past day meditating upon our wrongdoings, and we have begged for forgiveness. But in these moments, we turn our attention to those who gave no thought to forgiveness, to those who gave no thought to God, no thought to the dignity of the Jewish people, to the care of the weakest, to Leon Silber and one and a half million other children, to the helpless. And after focusing on our anger, on our actions, we turn to the actions of others, and from our parched throats we will say, Our Father, our King, do not forgive them. Because they know what they did. To them, there can be and will be no forgiveness. To them, our hatred will follow for eternity's time. Yizkor, we will not forget, we will remember. But for those we have loved, the tender, the good, the decent, the innocent, our beautiful beloved ones. For them, we pray no less as we pray for ourselves. We will devote our lives as a blessing to theirs. We ask God to hold them as lovingly as we hold them in our memories. Today, we pray to be better because of their better. Today, we pray for goodness because their love reminds us that no matter how broken we may be, better is not only possible, but so needed. Mar chatima tova. tova.